Hi everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast, and pay respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples past and present. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's Schools of Culture, History and Language, and of Archaeology and Anthropology, and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I am your Familiar Stranger today, Simon Theobald, together with my fellow strangers, Jodie Lee Trembath, Ian Pollock, Julia Brown. Welcome to the show. Jodie, are you starting us today? I would love to start us today, so Simon. please, let us know, what are you thinking about this week? I've been thinking about the Golden Globes, actually. I mean, not, you know, all the time because I've mostly been working. This year at the Golden Globes, there was a huge social movement of particularly women who chose to wear black in protest of the kinds of awful things that have been happening in Hollywood and all over the world with men in positions of power abusing those positions of power, particularly against less powerful women. So in those protests, it wasn't just what they were wearing. Uh, It was also how they used winning awards as platforms to be able to talk about women's empowerment. And I thought that was pretty amazing and I I was really quite inspired even though I don't normally watch the Golden Globes. So I was also then uh, went down a little bit of a wormhole and ended up at this article called What the Men Didn't Say. And in this article, the author talks about how if you only watched the women's speeches at the Golden Globes this year, you would think that Hollywood had completely changed and that there was this massive social movement. But if you only watched the men's speeches, at this year's Golden Globes, you would think that nothing had changed because all the men's speeches were exactly the same. They did not mention this movement at all. I thought that was really interesting. It was like a completely different kind of, uh, like they were living in a parallel universe. But then I was thinking, do we ever know? Do we ever know what people are thinking? Do we ever really understand what's going on at something like a protest? What's going on beneath the alleged surface of something like the Golden Globes. And so I guess that's what I wanted to ask you. What is it that we were actually seeing there? And how can we ever know when we're observing what we're actually seeing? Yeah, look, it's a really, it's a, it is an interesting dilemma. I think this whole question, I think for me, the question of interiority uh, versus the kind of exteriority of a person, what someone presents and so on, throws up conundrums because I think, I think it, for a lot of us coming from a notion, a kind of a historical tradition that says the seat of genuine feeling and emotions and so on is the internal space. And like from, there's a there's a performative self on the outside and a true self yeah, on the inside. Yeah, absolutely. And I find that really problematic. And in my experience, I mean, when I was in Iran, I spoke to some people who had participated back in the 2009 protests, not these not this current bout. And when I asked them why did you go, a lot of people said well it was just fun. And so that kind of undercut the whole narrative about it being like this kind of mass political demonstration that was a that these people I spoke to said, you know, I just happened to be there. Everyone was doing it. I felt like doing it too. So, so it's like what they were attending wasn't actually a protest at all, but like a street carnival? Basically, yeah. It, it, it does. It raises this fundamental difficulty. If we're trying to work on an anthropology that analyzes people's true state, I think we've, we've taken ourselves down a completely wrong-headed rabbit hole, wormhole. So if we're looking then at the men at the Golden Globes who didn't behave like allies, I guess, is is the way that it's being described on the internet, are we then saying that, that we can't 
rely on that behaviour as actually not behaving like allies because we can't look beneath the surface to understand their intentions. I, I would work on the old adage that actions speak louder than interior states. <laughs> actions, I love that adage. Yeah, um, I think that I think that there's a, you know there's a great tradition of anthropology studying the performative, right? But I and I think that in some ways we ourselves maybe are still caught up in particular notions about there being true emotional states, emotional states again being more genuine. But I think really you have to look at the actions of someone. Actions are what we can true is what you present to other people. And that's all that can ultimately be read. You don't know whether I am telling you that I'm your best friend and secretly I want to steal your cake. So I just got so possessive of my cake. You have no yeah. idea the feelings I just had. <laughs> my goodness. It's I, also I, I am gonna steal Jody's cake later. It's also easy to quibble with the authenticity of people's performances of solidarity. Mm. You know, if somebody, if if a man at the Golden Globes did stand up and make a speech in defense of uh, women who'd been victims of sexual abuse, for instance, I think it would be just as easy to criticize them for making that stand in the most public possible way if perhaps they hadn't also been making a lot of actions behind the scenes. Those are the, those are the actions that would really speak the loudest about their intentions rather than the performance that you can question the authenticity of to look at like how has this person been working for justice mm. or not. In talking to some girlfriends and also my boyfriend about this, uh, the consensus was that it's about the timing as well. And in as far as we can say that it wasn't the men's place to have their platform to speak, we can also say that those actions and that performance in the future is what will count. So I think in terms of deciding how men in this instance are feeling about it, that is only going to be fairly put under scrutiny now that there will be consequences for their performance. To move us along, unfortunately, should we go to Ian? What are you thinking about this week? This, this week, Ian, not we, Ian. What are you thinking about? <laughs> you don't know what I'm doing in this chair. <laughs> oh, <gross. laughs> anyway, what I've been thinking about this week is uh, using sickness as a research method when you're in the field. Uh, and this came up in a conversation with a friend of ours, Mike Rose, who actually has a blog on the website just recently called Inedia with a Grain of Salt. Where, funnily enough, he talks about consuming urine. So Mike, when he did his field work in East Timor, he used sickness as a method in two different ways. And one of them was that, just from being out in the field, he was sick a lot. He had like a weird infection in his face and he had like a spider bite on his foot and just these terrible things that were happening to him. They get really bad. and through those sicknesses, he came into contact with kind of institutions and people he might not have otherwise that really directed his research. So for instance, he got to go, got to, he had to go and interact with like the, the UN field hospital. And he had to also go and engage with uh, traditional healers. And he also got really deeply involved with a kind of Catholic faith healing group called the Sacred Family with their own kind of prophet that they centered around. He's got an article about it now called The Book of Dan. And so his sickness kind of directed him along these various paths uh, that ended up becoming kind of the, the backbone of his thesis. It's like seven out of nine chapters, he told me. A lot of them had to do with things that came up because of his illnesses. There was another aspect in which he used uh, sickness as a method, which was a kind of like a phenomenological one. So what that means is that because of the way that the sicknesses made him feel in his body, that he felt in some ways... And it, it's not as simple as saying like just because he was sick and his participants also got sick a lot, he knew exactly what their experiences were like. But he did feel like it gave him a glimpse of something closer to their actual experience of daily life. So people who didn't eat well, 
And while he was there, he didn't eat well. He lost a lot of weight. And it's part of what made him vulnerable to these sicknesses, I think. You know, he walked everywhere. He was walking up and down the mountains twice a week, like all of his participants did. And he suffered their illnesses as well. His body was subject to kind of invasion by the same agents. And then he tried to explain it or live through their explanation of what those agents were and how that worked, describing it in terms of, you know, bacterial agents or spiritual agents, and to engage with them in the same ways that his participants did. He felt like it, it sort of gave him a different insight into what it was like to be one of those meto people that he was studying. And I wonder, you know, that phenomenological approach of like trying to feel what other people feel so that you understand them better, is that something you guys use as well? Well, I certainly have used a phenomenological approach with my research. However, there have been very clear boundaries around that. Obviously, I could not consume the antipsychotic drug that a lot of my participants were taking. But I think that there is value in trying to get at that lived experience, considering anthropologists are the analytical instruments. Yeah, I wonder how much of it comes back to what we were talking about last month uh, when Julia was saying about trying to get back into that mode when she is writing and, you know, trying to embody the feelings of the field. I mean, there's a danger to it because it is a lived experience. And in Mike's case, there was a danger as well. I mean, he made his body very vulnerable. And some of that was on purpose, but he didn't choose to get sick in those ways. The real question is how much credence we can give to that idea of trying to recreate somebody's physical experience as closely as possible gives us an insight into what it's like to be them. I think there's a there's a kind of for me there's a fundamental philosophical issue here which is this idea of qualia. Um, of what? Qualia, which uh, Q U A L I A. No, um, it's not just a fancy resort off the Hamilton Islands or something. Is it also <laughs> called qualia? I didn't I did not know that. Uh, is this kind of question about whether we experience things in the same manner that other people do? Mm, mm. And I actually don't think you can ever get an answer to that. I mean, a whole bunch of philosophers have argued that you know the kind of Occam's razor is that we probably all do experience the things in the same way, but we can't ever truly know. So do you think like as a method, it's a dead end for research to try and recreate somebody? I think all you can ever say is I recreated this and this is what I experienced. And in some ways, that's why I think it's quite important to also ask people what they are feeling. Hey, how do you feel about camping in the woods? So I think those those are two things that can be done simultaneously that, that inform each other and provide a kind of broader picture about what's going on. I think phenomenologists do ask those questions though. It's not as though they're just going off their own experiences. They're just kind of using it as an additional tool. But if you've ended up sick, then it's a useful way to take advantage of a crap situation. Okay, so to just to keep the flow going, Julia, what are you thinking about this week? So the thing I've been thinking about is the question that I started my whole PhD project with, which is the life expectancy gap between people that are treated for serious mental illnesses versus physical health conditions. In Australia, that gap is around 30 years, largely due to cardiovascular, metabolic, physical health conditions rather than the mental health side. So in talking with my clinical staff participants in my research about this question of motivation and what drives particular health behaviours, I came across two interesting quotes. One was from a psychiatrist who was commenting on why so many clozapine patients put on weight. And he said, in regards to the neurochemical effects of clozapine, for reasons we don't quite understand, these people don't experience satiety. 
And then I was talking to one of the phlebotomists who draws blood from patients. So That's she what a phlebotomist is? Yes. We would probably just call it a pathologist in Australia who doesn't have any background in mental health. She said, it all depends if they take any notice of the advice we give. And you cannot force them. Everything has to be done by them, by their own will. So there we have two different views. You know, the psychiatrist was saying that people are largely limited by the drugs. The phlebotomist was saying that it's whether they will take the initiative based on the advice that they're given. And then I was reading Emma Cowell's ethnography yesterday called Trapped in the Gap. She worked with what she describes as white anti-racist Australian health workers. And she commented that they prefer to think about Indigenous health gaps as due to structural factors only. And this was to avoid victim blaming. But then what we miss in doing this is unpacking that alternative agency because it would require a direct acting upon a changing that person and that could be framed in terms of social engineering. So this is really interesting to think about in the context of how I pull apart these ideas between what people can control and what they can't because I know that a lot of my patient participants are very aware of the dangers in various health behaviours that they pursue. However, they enjoy living in a very present centered way that is also representative of a quality of life that wouldn't sit comfortably with clinicians. So it kind of draws my attention to the the categories that we're using to define these gaps, right? So you're talking on the one hand about defining a health gap or a mortality gap between people with mental illness and people who don't have mental illness. But you could also describe the same gap in terms of people who try to take charge of their health choices and make healthy choices and people who don't, right? People's politics immediately impacts even what, the, what we'd consider science and health, realms of pure inquiry that have nothing to do with what you believe about people and what they're capable of. In fact, their politics really determine the way that they look at health, doesn't it? Absolutely. And there's also this complication of social norms amongst those population groups. If you're hanging out with people that drink a lot of alcohol, you're probably going to be more inclined to drink a lot of alcohol with them. What about the social contract? We're born into a society and we choose as we grow up and as we mature, we choose to stay in that society or not. But if we choose to stay in that society, then we're essentially signing that social contract that says I'm going to reap the benefits of remaining in this society and therefore I'm going to play by society's rules as well, right? Well, it's not really nearly so easy to just choose to leave a society, is it? I mean, people are compelled by the need to survive and they're limited by their access to resources. And they're really, so like to just pack up and move to another country isn't, with, isn't within everybody's ability. In my field site, the people that had better gold standard health outcomes in terms of achieving that holistic, physical, mental, social health were all participating in social worlds beyond their patienthood. I mean, that says a lot. What this reminds me of is the idea of what constitutes a good life. You know, I was reading something today about, who is it, Gwyneth Paltrow, and she was saying, people should be taking coffee enemas. Oy. And there's a whole bunch of <laughs> um, you know, qualified medical experts who are like, please do not take coffee enemas. <laughs> um, if you live in a world where you're like, well, I want to take coffee enemas, then the question for me rather becomes, do you respect that choice? And I think that's, that goes back to what Jody said. The person who takes a coffee enema and then has to go to hospital because they've you know, damaged their bowel or something, 
wh- where do we put them in the social contract? Do we say, well, it's it's your fault because you didn't listen to what everyone else is doing? Or do we say, well, no, they were making their own choices. They had a particular schema of value in mind, which overrided a broader discourse about a long life as the most important kind of life. I would be really interested in listeners' feedback on this as well. Especially Gwyneth Paltrow. I would also say there's probably a lot of experiences a lot of people would choose over the experience of being over 80 years old. You know, the the final years of a person's life can be really terrible. And the idea of giving those up in order to have a few more whiskeys, I could see that appealing to some people. Fair enough. And on that note... On that note, apparently I have to talk about myself. Um, So this week... I don't know what I what I'm kind of hypothesizing is a kind of slow academia. There's a kind of neoliberalization of university, which is we've all you know, established. Jody's writes about it, but in particular, there's a kind of winnowing down of the time that people are allowed to take to do field work. And as someone who spent 14 months in the field, and that definitely wasn't as long as some people. Some people go for 18 months, sometimes two years. Um, I was only 10 months. It was only 10 months. I know for me that part of that time, a I needed to learn a language, uh, and b a lot of that time was understanding what it was that I actually wanted to research because I found quite quickly that the original research question that I had gone into the field wasn't really gelling with people. It wasn't sticking in a way that I had hoped it would. It wasn't eliciting the kind of interest from people that I thought would make a kind of buoyant, fascinating thesis. So I think there's something to be really said. I mean, I think it kind of behooves us to to not hurrying people out of the, the fieldwork experience and hurrying them onto writing and hurrying them onto finishing their PhDs. I think there is really something to be said about a kind of long, a long stewing in one's intellectual juices to think about what it is that we can learn from other societies. And we have to recognize that sometimes that takes time. And if it takes a second t- trip back to the field, that's what it takes. And I think it also, you know, I had a lot of existential anxiety about the kind of nature of my project when I went in. I wasn't doing a field, I wasn't doing field work in a, in a remote place. I wasn't doing field work in a small village. I was doing field work in a big city in, in a relatively well-connected part of Iran. And what was that project that you went with? The original project was on charity, and it just wasn't as it wasn't as kind of sexy. People were kind of like, oh, you know. So you ask people about charity, and they're like, you're ask, just asking the wrong questions? They were like, why are you wasting our time? Yeah, they're, they're like, why are you wasting my time? You know, that's that. I think someone at one point said to me, Simon, we don't think about charity like you do in Australia. And it was at that point I was like, well... Okay. That sounds like a crisis moment. Yeah, but there were other things that I was interested in, and I followed those things. I took Victor Turner's example of following the drums. You know, you go where there is things that are exciting and interesting. Well, wait a minute. How long did it take for that moment to come when people just told you to stop it? How long did it take for you to give up on that original idea? I don't think I ever totally gave up on it. It was still a thread, and the idea of charity in Iran still really interests me. But as a kind of motive, as a singular motivating question, I probably dropped that maybe at about five months in. When someone was like, please stop asking me that question. <laughs> yeah, I just realized it wasn't it wasn't getting traction. So everyone often says, you know, be aware that you might throw out your question. But at the same time, have a really specific question so you're not treading on anyone else's toes. So you're not kind of reduplicating previously done research. If you get great data in a really small period of time and you think you can write something amazing, that's fantastic. But for those of us who like to stew, I say keep it slow. So there's this thing called episodic fieldwork, which is what I ended up doing, doing fieldwork in blocks and doing preliminary analyses in between going back to the field, partly because I was holding myself accountable to other clinical authorities who wanted to know quite quickly what I was finding in my research. So it kind of forced me to reflect 
a lot sooner. And while that might mean that you know ideas didn't have as much time to percolate the way that they would have over a very long period of time, I totally agree with you. And I think that there is a case for taking time to step outside of the field, reflect, and then go back. And sometimes that reflection might just be a month or a couple of months. But speaking of the neoliberal university, I mean, the real kind of limiting factor here is funding as much Absolutely. as anything else. You know, you have a limited amount of funding and you try to figure out the best way to utilize it for your particular interest or project. You know, people who have access to funding get to stay out longer. People who don't have access to funding don't get to. Yeah, I think that's a real shame. There are processes now that we kind of understand as being normative, which I, I think are in some ways attempts to winnow down that time that you do spend in the field. And people often say the kind of that push that there was as a publish or perish, that need to always have something on the boil, to always be ready to to turn raw data into published material. For me, it strikes me as an attenuation of anthropology's original effort to deeply understand what it was that people were doing. I think it's kind of it's. It, I don't say it's not a betrayal of our roots, but it's definitely a kind of attempt to make anthropology something which I think it was historically really proud of to try and move it away from that into something that's much more kind of packaged and processed and, and ready for sale as quickly as possible. Okay, sure, but where do we get the money for this and why should anthropology get the money to send people into the field for this these extensive periods of time rather than send the money to cancer research or to technologies that are going to, I don't know, make a difference in development or... You know, why Why anthropology? Why should we get two, more? Two immediate responses to that mm. is one, it won't be more. Because with someone with a partner who works in medical research, I can tell you that their basic costs are so much higher than ours. So we are talking actually relatively small amounts here. Secondly, it's a fairly narrow version of what humans can accomplish when you say that all there is is finding the next breakthrough cure in cancer and building the next combine harvester. I'm not saying that those things aren't worthy, they absolutely are, but I think there's also something to be said for us studying ourselves and enriching the ways in which we think about what it is to be people. That's all we have time for, ladies and gentlemen. I would like to thank Jody Lee Tremboth. Thanks, Simon. Ian Pollock. Thank you. And Julia Brown. Cheers. And I was Simon Theobald, today's grumpy host. Our episode was produced by all of us here at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producer is, as always, Ian Pollock. You can subscribe to us, which is The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us ratings or reviews with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us to make the show better. And we're pretty desperate for those bits of information at the moment. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music today was by Pete Dabro. Find a link to his EP in the show notes. And special thanks, as always, to Julia Miller, Will Grant, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time... The familiar strange. Goodbye. Goodbye.